And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this is really the Savior of the world. After two days, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they also had gone to the festival. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. Jesus told him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was going down, his servants met him, saying that his son was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed, along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. Amen. Thank you, Heather. Morning, church. Uh, if you don't know who I am, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> my name is Jeff Copeland. I am the teaching pastor at the Garage Church in Fresno, um, led by uh, Pastor Patient. Matadi, who hopefully you know, he used to be the youth pastor here, um, and I served here with him for about two years. It was, it's great to be back, man. It's really good to see you guys. Um, so uh, we are in John chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you're going to want to like keep that open. Okay, we're going to be 42 to 54. We're going to live in there for the next so many minutes. I'm not really sure how long, but... Last service, it wasn't that long, so hopefully <laughs> hopefully it's a little bit longer. Uh, I don't want to keep you guys too long, but we'll, we'll see where we go. So um, before we jump into the story, uh, let's talk a little bit about the author of this gospel, uh, John, the apostle. Um, his perspective is the most unique compared to all the other gospel writers. So John is writing last. He actually is writing this, we believe, around 90 AD, and it's still the first century, um, decades after Jesus has left and gone to heaven, and decades after the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have written their Gospels. So John has not only had their Gospels, but he's also seen a lot of things. Okay, he's an older man. Um, he's been with the church for his, pretty much most of his life. He has seen you know, persecution happen. He's seen what Paul did. They see Paul go on all these missionary journeys and, and speak to the Gentiles. And he's seen Gentiles actually receive the Holy Spirit and come into the church. So he sees the whole perspective. It's not limited to what the first gospel writers had, which was, okay, there's, the church was mostly Jews. And then all of a sudden we got a couple of Gentiles coming in. It's kind of weird. Okay, John's able to see the whole picture. He's seen all of Acts take place. He himself is actually suffering from persecution he actually dies exiled on an island by himself because of his faith and his following in Jesus. And so um, that is why he actually includes these stories about non-Jews. Like the story we, you guys read last week with the Samaritans, the Samaritan woman, those are non-Jews. This story today we're going to be reading 
about this royal official. He was not a Jew. And then even later in John 10, Jesus actually talks about their sheep uh, that are these other sheep that are not a part of the sheep. And he's actually talking about us. Unless anybody in here Jewish, if you are, that's great. But for the rest of us who are not Jewish, he was talking about us. We get to be included, right? That is why early on in the beginning of the book in chapter one, he says he came to that which was his own. He's talking about Jews. Jesus is a Jew. He comes to his own people and most of them reject him. Yet to those who did receive him and believe in his name, a.k.a. us, he gave us the right to be called children of God. And that's why you have in verse 42, these non-Jews saying he has come, he is the savior of the world, not just the Jews. That is amazing news. I could probably stop right there. We could say, man, I'm not going to though. Okay. So this is great. Now, before we continue getting into the story that we're going to get into, I think it's really important to understand our current cultural moment. Carl said last week that you don't need to make the Bible relevant. I agree with that. I think in order to understand how relevant the Bible actually is, we need to first understand the cultural waters that we are swimming in. Okay. This is called cultural discernment. There's actually like seminaries who are giving degree programs on this cultural discernment because it's such a big issue. Our culture that we are in is unique. Now, it's not new. Like a lot of this stuff has been going on, even as we're going to see in this story, 2,000 years ago. Like I heard it said that new news is just old news told to new people. So we are, we are the new people. And the devil has been using a lot of the same tactics forever. But I, again, I think it's really important to recognize the air that we are breathing, okay? It's called cultural discernment. It's vital to our discipleship. So uh, three kind of ideas about this. So first of all, we have transitioned from a should culture to a could culture. Let me explain. So a should culture characterizes itself based on discipline, values, rules, and following authority. You listen to authority. A lot of the culture that we read in the Bible is coming from a should culture. These are things you should do. These are things you shouldn't do, right? And both, just so you know, both politically left and right lived in a should. They just have different shoulds and should nots, right? Now, we have shifted, unfortunately, to a could culture. That means that it's all about what we could do. It's about possibilities. It's about options. It's about freedom. It's about a lack of commitment and a rejection of authority. I mean, literally, we tell you in the morning, hey, you could have been anywhere this morning. That is the like, motto of the culture. You could be anywhere, right? So instead of us being oppressed with a bunch of no's, no, you shouldn't do that. Yes, you should do this. We're actually oppressed with a bunch of yeses, right? So yeah, you can follow Jesus, but you can also do this. You can also go here. You can also watch this. I mean, think about <laughs> Netflix. There's an endless amount of options. Like literally, I'm on episode three of Outer Banks season three right now. It just came out. I'm like, oh man, Outer Banks is out. Like, who cares? <laughs> Why is that important? But we are just bombarded with options. You can literally scroll endlessly on social media. There is an infinite amount of videos on TikTok. It'll never run out. That is the could culture. 
all the, think about all the things you could be doing. Because of that, you actually cannot commit to anything because that'll limit your options, right? So I can't go to church every Sunday. That's taking away my options. I gotta, I'll, I'll go once a month, maybe twice a month, which is actually the average amount of attendance that we see in the church today in America. If you're a good Christian, you go once a month. If you're amazing, you go twice a month, right? But you got to keep your options open. And that leads us to the two most used tactics by the enemy. So he oscillates between persecution and seduction. Now, both of them are bad. Persecution, you know, the funny thing about it is every time you read about it in the church, persecution always causes the church to grow. It always does better when it's persecuted. When, when there's oppression saying, hey, if you, if you worship Jesus, we're going to kill you. You don't have time for denominations. You don't have time for like, well, I don't know if I agree with you on that theological point. Like, we're about to die. We don't have time. We got to, man, I follow Jesus. All right, cool. We're with it. Like, it actually leads to genuine discipleship and genuine growth. I mean, right now, the church is in China, especially, is getting crazy persecuted. They don't have time to be Baptist and Presbyterian. They got to be following Jesus or that's it. So it always leads to growth. Read the book of Acts. We wouldn't even be here if the Jerusalem Jews who were Christian hadn't been persecuted and had to leave Jerusalem and go out and spread Christianity to all the Gentiles. Paul wouldn't even done what he did. We would not be sitting here right now if it wasn't for persecution. So yes, persecution is a problem. We should be watching out for it. And it is happening in our culture. We are being persecuted slowly for our faith. But a bigger problem, in my opinion, is seduction. Seduction creates things to compete with God. So yes, you can worship Jesus, but you can also worship Netflix. You can also worship, you know, social media. You can also worship all these other things. There's so many options that you are seduced by, and it's about distraction. We are inundated with distractions. I mean, literally right now on my tablet, I have a bunch of notifications that I'm like tempted to look at while I'm preaching. That's a problem, (laughs) right? And it's all about escaping reality. We, I mean, we watch all these fantasies about nonsense all day, binging it. I mean, Netflix has made it so easy. I'm sorry I'm attacking Netflix a lot, but it make it so easy. They'll just skip to the next episode, skip the intro. They're just like, keep watching. Stay on here, right? It's all about distraction and escaping reality, not facing what's really going on, not facing the world, but escaping from it. And that leads to the last point. Instead of our culture being worried about doing good, it's all about feeling good. Now, that doesn't just stay out in the world. That affects the church. If the point of life is to feel good, I'm going to chase feeling good. I'm going to chase experiences. I'm going to chase signs and wonders like in this story. The whole point of the story we're going to get to, it's about trying to see a sign and a miracle from Jesus. If we are in a coach that's about feeling good, that's what we're going to chase even in our relationships. If you have friendships and you're all about feeling good, when it doesn't feel good, what are you going to do? You're going to leave. Like, oh, man, I, this experience isn't great. Or, you know, I'm not, this is kind of boring. I'm out. Same thing with our relationship with God. If I'm worried about feeling good and it doesn't feel good, I think something's wrong. Think about prayer. 
We pray and we're expecting to feel something. When we don't feel something, we're like, oh, I must be doing it wrong, or God's not listening, or he must not be real, or ooh, what's on Netflix? Like we just, we, we are so worried about our feelings. There's nothing wrong with experiences, right? There's nothing wrong with worshiping and experiencing God and having emotion. But if that's what we're chasing, it's not going to fulfill us. It's actually going to lead to probably our culture's biggest problem, which is anxiety. The result of chasing feelings and feeling good is not feeling good, it's anxiety, which also leads to pain. Anxiety is no longer this like medical condition that a few people get diagnosed with. It is actually like the air we breathe. We are completely anxious as a society, as a culture. I mean, news headline, everything is about creating anxiety. We are just so anxious because, okay, well, I tried this, it didn't work. Let me try this option. I have so many options to choose from. All it brings is anxiety and pain. And when bad things do happen, you don't know what to do because it doesn't feel good. Like our story. Let's get back to our story. So this guy, this royal official, he lives a life of luxury. He lives a life of comfort, of feeling good. He is part of the seduction culture of his day. So he's a royal official, which means he works for the king at the time, which was King Herod, who the Romans had put in charge of the Jews. He himself was not a Jew. So the Jews hated him. He was not part of the line of David. He was this puppet king that the Romans installed to control. And this guy works for him. So he's also hated by the Jews, right? He has everything he could ever want. He has a ton of options. There's a lot of things he could do. He has servants. He's living the life. And then his son gets sick. And his could culture, his feel-good culture, cannot help him. And so he turns to the only solution that we have. It says that he heard that Jesus was coming, so he goes to see him. You see, Jesus is the only cure for this world. It's not chasing, you know, the thing that's going to distract me or help me escape reality. It's facing reality with Jesus. That's the answer, okay? Now, he, he goes, his son is sick, and he said, hey, Jesus, can you come heal my son? And Jesus' reaction troubled me at first. When I was first working on this, I was like, what do I do with this? Look what he says. Jesus told them, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Bro, my son is sick. What are you talking about? Why are you talking about this? Why is this your response? Man, you guys always got to see some signs. Okay, that's great, but like my son, like he's really sick. Can you help? It's very confusing. Like, is Jesus annoyed? Is he stating a fact? Like, where was he at before this? Where did he just come from? He had just spent two days where? With the Samaria. Good job. First service didn't know. They were like, uh, we don't know. Yes. He was just in Samaria with the Samaritans who were not Jews. And what does he say about them? This is what they said. They told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the savior of the world. Did they see any miracles? No. They, based on what a woman told them, the Samaritan woman, and then what Jesus told them, what they heard, they believed without seeing signs. There's a reason why this story is immediately before what Jesus just says, right? And then Look at what Jesus says uh, 
in verse 44. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So he said, we're going to go to Galilee, and we don't get no honor in our own country as a prophet. And then what immediately happens? He enters in the Galilee, and the Galileans welcomed him. I thought you just said you don't get honor. And then they're welcoming you. This is confusing, Jesus. What are you saying? It's actually really, really powerful when we break it down. So this Roman, this royal official who is not a Jew, okay, he, he comes to Jesus. The people would have hated this guy. They would think he is not worthy of the Messiah. He is, he is a horrible person. He is not fit. And yet Jesus gives him grace. This non-Jew receives grace. That is a sign for us. We are going to receive grace even though we are outside the people of God. Now, here's the thing about this guy. He clearly already had faith in Jesus. Has he seen any miracles? No. He says, let me go back to it. He heard that Jesus was coming. He has not seen a miracle. Why did the Galileans welcome him? What does it say? Why was he welcomed by them? They saw a sign. They saw Jesus do a miracle. Like, wow, that was such a cool experience. I felt something. I want to chase after this. This is amazing. I want to believe this guy because he did a miracle. You see, <laughs> Jesus says, Unless you people. Is anybody's Bible not have the word people next to you? Anybody's translation not have that? The funny thing is in the Greek, there is no word people. It's not there. But the you is plural. So it says, Jesus told him, the guy, the royal official, unless you people, plural, see signs. Who is Jesus talking to? Who else is there? The Galileans. You see, we read this story as like it's a one-on-one isolated conversation. It just said the Galileans welcome him in. This guy actually comes to Jesus. The Galileans are still there. The ones that welcomed him because of what they saw, Jesus is not talking to the royal officials. He's talking to them. He's looking at this guy and saying, unless you people see signs, you won't believe. And then Jesus, he's attacking them for their their fake faith. Here's the thing about signs. They usually confirm faith. They rarely create it. Signs usually confirm faith that is already there. They rarely create new faith. Signs and wonders and miracles are great. I'm not trying to bash them. But if you need that to believe in Jesus, if you need a sign, something is wrong. The guy says, sir, Jesus, can you, can you just come, my boy? He's dying, man. Can you, you're doing all this talking. Can you just, he's about to die. Come with me. Does Jesus go with him? No. He says, go, your son will live. He refuses to actually go because if he would have gone, who would have came with him? The Galileans would have, oh, he's about to go do nothing. Let's go. It's going to be a cool experience. He says, no, go. He's going to live. The guy believed what Jesus said. He believed what he heard, and he went. And then his servants come and say, hey, man, your son's good. He's alive. When was he alive? 
when Jesus said, your son will live. Look, Jesus doesn't say, your faith has healed your son, or I have healed your son with my power. He just says, he'll live. Go. Now, did Jesus heal his son? Yes. Is this a miracle? Yes. But he's intentionally not trying to make them see a sign. Did this royal official see anything? No. Okay, he didn't see a sign, and yet he believed. Jesus is attacking this fake faith. And through this guy's belief, his entire household is saved. Listen, signs and wonders are great. Miracles are wonderful. My son, sitting right here, he's six months old. He is literally a miracle. If you know my wife and I's story, the fact that he's even here is a miracle. But I don't worship God because of that, because we need to believe in spite of miracles, not because of them. Because before my son got here, we had a previous pregnancy, and we lost that one after praying for so long. We lost the pregnancy. If I was somebody who was chasing feelings and experiences of God and I needed signs, I would have walked away. And now that he's here, it, it doesn't make my, God's not any less God. He hasn't changed. When I lost the first baby, he was still God. When we have this new baby, he's still God. We need to believe in spite, not because. Listen, John has intentionally given us seven signs, seven miracles of Jesus. He could have picked a whole bunch. He picked these seven. I believe he picked this one to show us, hey, it's not all about the signs. It's not all about the miracles and, and these experiences. Can you believe because of what you have heard? Listen, you guys are going to get to this later in the series. I'm really excited for Carl to preach this. This is chapter 17 of John. Jesus is praying and he says this, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So the these is the disciples, the guys who are with them, including John who wrote this book. But the those is us. Has anyone in here seen Jesus? If you have, we need to talk after service, okay, because I was, I, what he looked like? Anyway, um, no, most of us in here, we have not seen him. We believe because of what the, the, the disciples and the apostles said to us through this book. We believe because of what John has written, who was with him. We haven't seen it. We believe based on hearing. If we require a sign from Jesus, he's annoyed by that. Yes, I will do miracles. Yes, I will do signs, but you shouldn't need that. Believe because of what you have heard. Who are we supposed to emulate in this story? We've got the Samaritans. We've got the Galileans. We've got Jesus. We've got the royal official. These are the characters in this story, right? Now, obviously, we should emulate Jesus. That's Check that box, Okay. But we should not be like the Galileans who needed a sign. We should emulate the Samaritans and the royal official, two people who were sinners, who were outside of God's people, and yet believed based on what they heard. That is us. They embody who we are. Listen, everyone in the story had an encounter with Jesus. Everybody had an encounter with him. Not everybody had faith. We can have experiences, but do we have belief? Do we have faith? John wrote this gospel so that we would believe. 
That's the whole title of the series. And he made sure to include this in here on purpose. Our culture makes it super, super difficult to have faith. It's all about seeing what you believe, right? We haven't seen it. Can we still believe? We have so many options and distractions and loyalties that compete with Jesus. Can we remove the noise and hear his word? I was talking to somebody after service, and they said, yeah, man, and sometimes it's really hard to hear God's voice. And I, and I, I wish you would speak louder, is what they said. And I said, well, God's voice is like a crystal clear lake. You can see all the way to the bottom. That's his voice. And what we do is we take things like Netflix and social media and podcasts and all this stuff. We throw it in. It hits the bottom and kicks up a bunch of sand. And now we can't see. God's voice has not changed. He's still speaking the same volume, but we've added so much noise, we can't hear him. Can we remove the noise that's competing with him so we can actually hear his voice? And again, we can't chase feeling good. Because I have to ask myself every day, do I worship God or do I worship my experiences of God? There's a difference. Do I worship him or my experiences of him? Do I worship him even when it doesn't feel good? Do I pray even when it doesn't feel good? Do Do I believe in him? Do I trust him even when things are bad, when it's not feeling good? That is the question. Now, the result of all of this in the story is that this man and his entire household believed. This theme of the household is a very important theme in the New Testament. Um, it actually goes through the whole Bible, but it's, it's, it's so amazing when you see it. You'll see it everywhere. Once I show it to you, you'll see it everywhere. Okay? These are other examples of this idea of the household. This is in Acts. So Acts 11, it says, He will speak a message to you by which you and all your household will be saved. He will speak a message, you will hear it and your household will be saved. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. Last one, 18.8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. Now, this idea of household, this word household in Greek is oikos, Carl talks about it a lot. It's what he says is your huddle. It's actually where the, that idea comes from. Now, for us, our huddle is the 8 to 15 people that we are in close contact with. For the people in the Bible, the household was so much more significant. It was your entire source of identity and loyalty. It wasn't just your immediate family. It was extended family. It was people in your neighborhood, people you did business with. It was like your entire community was your household. And that was the thing that demanded your absolute loyalty. And so Jesus is coming in. Part of the reason he's coming is to save households, oikos, but not just save them. He's here to take them to another level. Look at Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers. That's us, Gentiles. We're no longer away from God's people. We are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. See, God is here to make a new household, a new family. That's why in chapter one, he says you have the right to be called children of God. That's family language. 
He calls himself our father. That's family language. In John 3, he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Every single person is born into a what? A family. When you're born, you get a name. So if we're born again, we're part of a new family and we get a new name. It doesn't matter who we used to be before and who we, what we used to be loyal to before. He's calling us to a new loyalty, a new family. It doesn't matter. You all in here are my family now. Even if we look completely different, you are my family. That is amazing. We got to remove the distractions, the things that are competing with this idea, and remember that we are part of God's household. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much just for the ability to call you our Father. Thank you for making it possible for us to be your children. Lord, thank you for signs and wonders that you do, but we also thank you for for not doing them. We thank you for challenging us to examine ourselves, examine our faith, and determine if it's genuine or not. Are we requiring of you to give a sign? Are we like the Galileans, God, or can we be like those who believe in you in spite of the miracles, Lord? Miracles are great. Healing is great. We will continue to ask you for those things, Lord. But we don't require them of you because you've already done enough. You died for us. You rose again. And that is enough. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.